Hello and welcome to episode 27 of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Beethoven's early leader or art songs. The German lead tradition of the late 18th and 19th centuries is a rich one, with commentators often suggesting that Schubert is the first truly major practitioner in that tradition. There's no question about Schubert's brilliance as a writer of art songs, of course, but there are earlier examples of the tradition that are worth investigating. Haydn and Mozart, among many others, both composed Lieder, although both probably thought of the activity as secondary or even tertiary to the genres in which they produced more ambitious works. Their songs are normally strophic in form, meaning each stanza is set to the same music. Of course, Schubert composed some absolute masterpieces in strophic form, but in general we tend to think of songs using that approach as being less sophisticated because of their relative lack of sensitivity to different nuances of meaning from one stanza to the next. I should point out, however, that the fact that each stanza is repeated with the same notated music doesn't rule out performers, the singers especially in this case, making subtle changes, and perhaps not even so subtle changes, in the way in which the vocal melody is rendered. Perhaps new ornamentation is added, or more subtle devices of inflection may be incorporated to reflect changes in mood from one stanza to the next. But the notated musical settings by Mozart and Haydn are themselves often quite simple, particularly Haydn's, providing attractive little tunes for amateurs to perform in domestic situations. Frequently, the piano accompaniments, again, especially with Haydn, are quite basic, sometimes with no differentiation between the sung vocal melody and the right hand of the piano accompaniment. By the way, there were, of course, other 18th century composers who devoted their serious attention to the composition of Lieder. Zumsteg and Zelter, probably Goethe's favorite lead composer, and Reichert, just to name some of the most notable. But we are, of course, primarily concerned with Beethoven's early leader in this episode, and we'll begin by taking a look at some of the eight songs published in 1805 as Opus 52, but which are almost certainly early works, some dating back to the composer's Bond days. The ordering of the eight songs seems more or less random, and performers have never felt obligated to sing them in order, or, as far as that goes, sing all eight together as a group. The first of these, based on a poem by Matthias Claudius, is titled in translation, Urien's Journey Around the World, or in the more colorful translation by Yuri Liebrecht, which accompanies the very valuable signum recording of the Beethoven songs, The Travails of a Boar. The song is something of a musical travelogue, and the poem is of minimal literary value, but Beethoven may well have seen it as a character study of sorts. And although Beethoven was thought to have reasonably rarefied tastes in literature, we know that his sense of humor at times bordered on the buffoonish and this text may have appealed to him on that level. The first part of the first stanza in Liebrecht's translation reads, A chap who goes a-traveling can tell you many a tale. I took my stick, put on my hat, and so I hit the trail. 
The meter is 3-4, the song marked piano throughout, although one suspects that a more robust attack would suit the text better. The verse in A minor is eight measures long, consisting of four two-bar phrases, all of them opening with the same rhythmic figure, which starts with an upbeat eighth note. The harmonic vocabulary is quite simple, although Beethoven does toss in a deceptive cadence in the third phrase. Wenn jemand eine Reise tut, so kann er was verzählen. Drum nahm ich meinen Stock und Hut und tät das Reisen The four-bar refrain, Mark Tutti in the score, borders on the nonsensical and celebrates our hero not doing too badly in his travels. It flips into A major for this little celebration of our hero's accomplishments and is rhythmically a little livelier than the verse, although it does share some rhythmic motives with it. Here's the four-bar refrain leading into the next stanza. Our hero's journey takes him over the course of 14 stanzas to the North Pole, Greenland, to visit the Eskimos from Terra Nova, where he punches one of them in the nose and gets a going over, as he puts it. He also visits America, China, and Timbuktu, the Indies, Java, and Africa, among other places, before concluding in the final verse that everywhere was just like here. The second song in the set, Firefarb, or The Color of Fire, is a little more interesting, musically speaking. The first stanza of the text by Sophie Moreau reads, There is a color dear to me, dearer than silver and gold. I wear it on my brow and my clothes. The color of truth it is called. Beethoven's musical treatment in G major 6-8 time and marked andante con moto is somewhat flippant, but then the text as it proceeds is not without some semi-ironic observations about the colors that reflect certain aspects of life and love. After a simple three-bar introduction that previews the opening triadic arpeggio of the vocal melody, the song unfolds in two parts, the first eight bars long, serving as a vehicle for stanzas one, three, and five. It's all quite simple, again broken up mostly into two-bar phrases, although there is more variety in terms of melodic shape compared to the first song. The harmonies are again simple, generally alternating between tonic and dominant chords, with one secondary dominant chord introduced at the end of the section to suggest a modulation to D major. Here's the brief introduction and opening stanza. Ich so gerne um Stirn und mir Band und habe sie 
The second section, which serves for stanzas 2, 4, and 6, is introduced after a one-measure linking passage in the piano. It's divided into two sections, the first ending on a fermata, introduced by the only semi-surprising harmonic event in the song, a full-diminished seventh chord, which tonicizes the dominant chord. I'm referring to this as a semi-surprising chord only because of the overwhelmingly plain vanilla nature of the harmonies which Beethoven tends to make use of for these songs. Given Beethoven's harmonic vocabulary in general, a diminished seventh chord, as you no doubt glean from other episodes, would hardly be considered a special event. The text of the second stanza is, True, the blooms of the dear gentle rose glow, but soon they will fade. That's been called the color of love, an attractive but unreliable shade. By the way, the diminished seventh chord is introduced right before the reference to the fading glow of the rose's bloom, so could be considered an expressive detail related specifically to that part of the text. On the other hand, and this is the problem with over-interpreting special harmonic effects in a strophic song, the diminished seventh chord in question does not necessarily align with affective or emotional phrases in later stanzas. Here is the first part of the second section, introduced by the linking phrase and ending on the fermata prefaced by the diminished seventh chord. As usual, the right hand of the piano part doubles and occasionally embellishes the vocal line. The second part, after the fermata, is melodically similar to, but not identical with, the first part of the song. It makes use of a different secondary dominant chord this time, one that highlights the subdominant chord in the key. But the real harmonic novelty actually comes in the piano's little four-measure postlude, which appears ever so briefly to tilt toward C minor. In fact, Beethoven throws in a little flurry of diminished chords at the last minute, but it all goes by very quickly, and we conclude with a perfectly polite little cadence on G major. Here is the second part after the fermata and including the little piano postlude. In this collection of early songs, Beethoven included two based on texts by Goethe, whom Beethoven, of course, greatly admired. And his admiration for the poet seems to have prompted the composer's best work in one instance. One of the songs, Marmot, is fairly trivial in terms of both poetry and Beethoven's setting. But the other, My Lied or May's Song, a pan simultaneously to nature and to young love, is more ambitious, and Beethoven's setting follows suit to some extent. 
The text for the first stanza, again using Liebrecht's free translation, is To me so glorious nature seems, the laughing meadows, the sunshine's beams, blossom bursting from every stem, a thousand voices with their amen. Their joy delight in every breast, O earth, O sun, rebirth expressed. Beethoven's musical setting is in E-flat major, 2-4 time, and marked allegro. The piano introduction of 14 bars previews the vocal melody in the right hand, while the left frequently harmonizes with it a tenth or sixth lower. The vocal melody unfolds pleasantly with a leisurely combination of eighth notes and quarter notes. The first phrase follows a generally descending contour, but the second has a stronger personality, moving aggressively upward with a reference to laughing meadows and sunshine's beams. The third phrase, accompanying the reference to blossoms bursting from every stem, is a strongly contrasting and highly energetic one, beginning with bold triadic leaps and featuring a dramatic octave leap in the first two bars. Another dramatic ascending phrase, similar to the second, is heard at the reference to a thousand voices with their amen, and a varied repeat of the bold third phrase serves to accompany the final line of the text, reflecting the joy and delight in every breast. Here is the piano introduction and first stanza, 24 bars in length, with a clear cadence in bar 16, coinciding with the Amen, and another one after the reference to Rebirth Expressed. After a 14-bar piano interlude of minimal interest, we encounter the second part of the text. O love, O love, such glorious sights as morning clouds on distant heights. Gloriously you bless the greening fields, a cloud of bloom the rich earth yields. My girl, dear girl, how I love thee, how your eyes show that you love me. Beethoven's musical treatment for this part of the text is not very different from the first. The melodic differences are slight, although the accompanying piano texture is a bit thicker in places with more octave doublings. After another 14-bar piano interlude, we hear the third part of the text. Just as the lark loves song and flight, and morning flowers the heavens light, so I love thee wholeheartedly, who lent me youth and made me free, to sing new songs and dance again, 
Be happy always, your love retain. Again, the most memorable phrases from the first section are in evidence here, but some differences in Beethoven's treatment for this stanza are revealed as we proceed. One phrase heard only once in the previous stanzas is immediately repeated here, and from that point on, the melody becomes somewhat more expansive. Furthermore, the piano accompaniment becomes more rhythmically insistent, and the harmonies increasingly fall into clearly cadential patterns as we approach the brief little coda that concludes the song. So liebt die Lerche Gesang und Lust und Morgenblumen den Himmelsduft, wie ich dich liebe mit warmen Blut, die du mir Jugend und Freud und Mut zu neuen Liedern und Tänzen gibst. Sei ewig glücklich, wie du mich liebst. Sei ewig glücklich, wie du mich liebst. Sei ewig glücklich, wie du mich liebst. It would be difficult to argue that there are any significant mood shifts between the three stanzas in Goethe's poem, and it's likely that some composers would have set the text in simple strophic style, repeating the exact same music for all three stanzas. Beethoven's approach, on the other hand, is closer to what is often referred to as a modified strophic approach, where the three stanzas are provided with similar music, after all, some of the most telling and memorable phrases do recur in each stanza, but there are some differences as well, especially in the third stanza. New details in the piano accompaniment, including a slight thickening of the texture in places, more rhythmically dynamic accompaniment patterns, and even the repetition of a key vocal phrase. So it's tempting to think that Beethoven, in this particular case, because of his special admiration for the poet, took more time in the setting of text than in some of the others from this collection, adding details and nuances which some of the other poems seem not to have inspired. We'll move on now to the Opus 48 collection of six liter, based on poems by Christian Fertigat Gellert a professor of philosophy and poetry at the University of Leipzig and an important figure in the German Enlightenment movement of that period. These six religious poems come from a larger collection of 54 titled Spiritual Odes and Songs, published in 1757. It was quite a popular and influential collection, and a number of composers set various poems from it, including C.P.E. Bach, who set every one. Although Beethoven's settings are usually thought of as having been composed in 1801 and 1802, it's once again been suggested by more than one Beethoven scholar that versions of at least one of the songs may date from a much earlier period. The Gellert leader are generally taken more seriously by commentators than the previous set, in part because all of the poems are by a single author and they resemble each other to some degree in their subject matter and approach. Whether Beethoven's setting of the six constitutes an actual song cycle is another matter, 
but some commentators take the position that Beethoven did intend these to be performed as a group and in order, filling two of the conditions usually associated with cycles rather than with mere collections. Maynard Solomon and Swafford, among others, have also suggested that the poems may have been chosen by Beethoven because at that point in his life, at the time of his spiritual crisis at Heiligenstadt, just coming to grips with his encroaching deafness and perhaps also the realization he would be unlikely to find a life partner, he turned toward religious texts, hoping they would provide some level of consolation even though his religious views in general were by no means orthodox. The first of these six songs is Bitten, or Prayers. The score indicates that the song is to be performed with solemnity and reverence. The translation for the first stanza, provided here by the Schiller Institute, is God, your goodness reaches out so far, as far as the clouds go. You crown us with mercy and hurry to our aid. Lord, my bastion, my rock, my treasure, hearken to my pleading, pay attention to my words, for here before you I am going to pray. The setting is in E major, a la breve, with an initial dynamic marking of piano. It opens with a stately eight-measure piano introduction, previewing the opening vocal melody. It's chorale-like in some respects, although generally in three parts rather than four. The melody in the top voice is relatively slow-moving, with the alto and bass lines beneath usually more active. The text is set syllabically for the most part, and, understandably, given the seriousness of its tone, devoid of flowery melismas. Of course, the songs in the collection we looked at earlier were also generally syllabic in nature, but in that case, many commentators referred to the melodies as folk-like in nature, whereas for the Gellert songs, the melodies are frequently characterized as hymn-like. Here's an excerpt with the piano introduction and first eight measures. There is just a hint of passing chromaticism in the melody before the first melodic statement comes to a stop on the dominant chord. But the second section quickly moves away from the home key and initially toward the relative minor key, C-sharp minor, as the second line of text is introduced. You crown us with mercy and hurry to our aid. This second melodic statement ends with a modulation to B major, the dominant in the original key, and that's where the third statement begins, coinciding with the text, Lord, my bastion, my rock, my treasure, hearken to my pleading, pay attention to my words. 
but although the melody here is almost static, with its repeated notes perhaps suggesting God's rock-like stability, the chromatic harmonies beneath the melody are actually quite elaborate and emotional, suggesting perhaps the singer's pleading tone. With the final melodic statement and the final selection of text, for here before you I am going to pray, we revert, at least initially, to a more emotionally neutral tone, although Beethoven does introduce an unexpected diminished seventh chord halfway through the statement. The next song, translated as Loving Your Neighbor, provides a robust endorsement of that sentiment, but it's largely devoid of any interesting subtleties, and we're going to skip it. Song number three, Fam Toda, or About Death, could hardly be more highly contrasting. The text for the opening stanza is, My lifetime is slipping away. Every hour I'm rushing to the grave. And what is it that I, perhaps, I still have to live for? Think, O oh man, about your death. Tarry not, because one thing is inevitable. Beethoven's setting is, as you might well imagine, stark and even ominous. It's in F-sharp minor, 3-4 time, with a tempo indication of moderate and more slow than fast. It begins pianissimo, with voice and piano right hand, slowly repeating the tonic note. Starting in the fourth bar, the voice moves up a half-step to G natural, the piano right hand following suit. But it also continues to sound the F-sharp against the G natural for two bars, creating a sharp half-step dissonance. After two measures, the dissonance is resolved, even as the text refers to rushing to my grave. As we proceed, the tonality becomes a little ambiguous in places, and in general Beethoven seems to sidestep conventional harmonic logic with diminished seventh chords, which repeat for measures without resolving, although they do so eventually, and the first section closes with a modulation to C-sharp, the dominant in the original key. The melodic continuity also seems a bit strained in places, the chromatic ascending movement in the first six bars is replaced initially with chromatically descending motion in bars 7 and 8. After that, we're met with unexpected ascending and descending leaps. Here are the first 16 bars. Habe, 
Before the next part of the text is introduced, Think, O Man, About Your Death, there is a brief linking passage in the piano which looks ahead to the new melodic vocal phrase with which the second section begins. After the singer repeats that phrase, he moves on to another string of repeated notes on Terry Not because one thing is inevitable. These repeated notes, soon harmonized by a diminished seventh chord, ascend by half-step as in the first part of the song, as the bass line descends by step against them. The last line, Terry Not, is repeated twice more, employing melodic ideas drawing from the first half of the song, harmonized initially by diminished seventh chords, but eventually settling back into F-sharp minor, the original tonic key, after a delaying action by a conspicuous deceptive cadence. The song finishes with a sparsely ominous postlude built on repeated F-sharps low in the piano's range. Here is the second part of the song, beginning with the brief piano interlude. It's quite a song, definitely looking ahead to some of Schubert's very austere songs in his final song cycle. The fourth song in the Gellert cycle is titled in translation, God's Glory from Nature, with the score indication of majestic and sublime. The text for the first stanza is, The heavens sing the Eternal's glory, their sound propagates his name. The earth, the seas, praise him. Hear, O man, their divine words. Beethoven's setting is in cut time in C major and begins with rousing fortissimo chords asserting the tonic triad. The vocal melody begins in a similar fashion, outlining the same triad in octaves with the piano accompaniment, then leaping a tenth and descending back to the tonic note, sustained by a fermata as is the dominant chord that follows it, bringing the first phrase of the text to a close. The second phrase, their sound propagates his name, is also launched with a large ascending leap in the vocal melody, but this time outlines a dominant seventh chord. To this point, we've heard nothing but tonic and dominant chords, so when Beethoven introduces a chromatic chord at the reference to his name, one of those augmented sixth chords that resolves down a half-step to the dominant, it sounds like an important event. Still, this phrase comes to a close once again on a C major tonic chord. Here's an excerpt to that point. <laughs>
But the next phrase, the earth, the seas, praise him, quietly explores some new tonal ground, plunging immediately into A minor with a melody that moves slowly up the scale. As the melody ascends, Beethoven introduces more unexpected harmonic maneuvers, first slipping into the key of B-flat major, but then detouring at the last second to arrive at G minor, with a powerful sforzando accent as the last part of the text is intoned. Hear, O man, their divine words. But Beethoven is not finished. He begins the next verse with another unexpected tonal shift, this time to E-flat major, where he resides for four full measures, and for which the text is, Who bears heaven's countless stars? Although the key is different and the dynamic level softer, the melody at this point resembles the phrase first encountered in measures 5 through 7 at the beginning of the song. But eventually, E-flat major gives way to C minor as the text states, Who leads the sun out from its tent? For the last part of the text, It comes and shines and laughs at us from afar and runs its course like a hero. Beethoven returns to the first melodic idea heard, the one based initially on triadic motion based on the C major chord. And a variant of this idea carries us to the end of the song, in which the final reference to a hero is rather predictably made with the help of accented C major chords. Here's the second part of the song, beginning with the piano's repeated chords in E-flat major. to skip the fifth song in this series and jump to Buslied, or Song of Penitence. It is the least hymn-like of the six, and perhaps in some ways the most ambitious. It's in A minor, 3-4 time, and marked poco adagio. Beethoven sets all six stanzas, so it's the longest song of the group. The first stanza is, Against you alone, against you have I sinned, and have often done evil in your presence. You see the guilt that is betrayed by my curses, but look to God upon my misery. The melody is somewhat florid, at least compared to the others we've looked at, and more shapely and rhythmically varied, although there are still a number of repeated note passages. 
The piano accompaniment is more ambitious here than in other songs we've looked at, and the texture is actually pianistic in places. That is, something that might be encountered in a late 18th century or early 19th century work for piano alone. Here is the first section. The first section concluded in E minor, and that's where the second begins, with the text, My pleading, my sighs are not hidden to you, and my tears are here before you. O God, my God, how long shall I be troubled? How long will you distance yourself from me? It's based on a new melodic idea, somewhat more narrow in range than the first, but characterized by expressive, accented, non-harmonic tones, representing musical size. The piano accompaniment is initially based on repeated eighth note patterns in the right hand, but later matches up more closely with the vocal melody. There is no piano interlude to break up the text at this point, which continues with, Lord, treat me not according to my sins. Repay me not according to my debt. I seek you. Let me find your face, you God of forbearance and patience. We're heading back to A minor at this point, and the melody is based in part on ideas heard in the opening measures of the song, although some new elements have also been added. The second half of the song is quite different, as you might expect, from the evolving nature of the text. Here is the first section. Early on you wanted to fill me with your grace, God, Father of mercy. Make me joyful for your name's sake. You are a God who likes to be joyful. It's in A major with a positively lively pianistic texture, with distinctive repeated patterns in the left hand revealed immediately in the piano introduction, which also provides a preview of the vocal melody. That melody is new, but not completely so. The opening measures resemble those of the first part of the song in their general contour, although here the line unfolds in longer note values and, being in A major rather than A minor, the general tone is much more optimistic even buoyant, as befits the text. Mm -hmm. 
Gnade fühlen. Gott, Vater, dir Barmherzigkeit, erfreue mich um deines Namens willen. Du bist ein Gott, der gerne freut. The next stanza is let me joyfully resume my pilgrimage on your path and teach me your divine law to behave in accordance with what pleases you. You are my God, I am your servant. It obviously brings with it no significant change in tone and minimal change in the melody, although the piano accompaniment shifts to a simpler arpeggio-based pattern. The text for the final stanza is... Lord, my protector, hurry to stand by me and guide me on the straight path. He hears my cries, the Lord heeds my pleas and accepts my soul. This text could have been treated somewhat differently in melodic terms, but in fact it is not, although the piano accompaniment now rises to its busiest level. So, in the end, this second half of the song once again shows a modified strophic approach. Taken as a group, do these Gellert Lieder, Opus 49, represent an advance in terms of musical sophistication over Beethoven's earlier group of songs, from Opus 52? The difficulty is that we really can't take them as a group and expect to come up with a clear-cut answer. If we look at the two most ambitious and successful songs among the Gellert Lieder, the Song of Penitence that we just looked at, and Vam Toda about death, which is even more impressive, although in a very different way, we might well conclude that there has been a significant advance in sophistication and musical value. If we are to factor in all six songs, including those we skipped over, then the verdict is by no means as certain. We're going to move on now to discuss a single song, actually composed earlier than some we've been discussing, probably between 1794 and 95, one which occupies a unique position among Beethoven's early leader. This song, Adelaide in its English pronunciation, published as Opus 46, is based on a poem by Friedrich von Matheson. The text, in a translation by Richard Stokes, reads, Your friend wanders lonely in the spring garden, gently bathed in the magical sweet light that shimmers through swaying boughs in bloom. Adelaide. In the mirroring waves, in the alpine snows, in the golden clouds of the dying day, in the fields of stars, your image shines. Adelaide. Evening breezes whisper in the tender leaves, the silvery bells of May rustle in the grass. Waves murmur and nightingales sing. Adelaide. One day, O oh miracle, there shall bloom on my grave a flower from the ashes of my heart. On every purple leaf shall clearly shimmer. Adelaide. There is some disagreement about whether the song should even be considered a lead or art song. Beethoven himself sometimes referred to it as a cantata, and an early published version of the score did as well. The song is in three parts, the third serving as something of a coda or postscript. The first part is in common time and marked larghetto, 
and is sometimes described as being in recitative style, although arioso style might be a more accurate term because it's really a blend of recitative style and more lyrical song-like or aria style, with the latter dominating in the early part of the song. The second section is marked alla breve and allegro molto, and makes use of a more conventionally song-like melody throughout, touching briefly on a more extroverted and impassioned aria style. Two-part vocal works, with the first being somewhat recitative-like and the second more aria-like, were very much the sort of thing that Beethoven was composing for his teacher Salieri, that master of Italian opera and cantata style. So, it was not as if Ludwig were unfamiliar with the pattern. And that may be the reason that the composer originally referred to Adelaide as a cantata. Although, of course, the text here is given in the original German, and the accompaniment is provided by the piano alone. So, it's not exactly a typical Italian-style cantata. But that arrangement is only for Beethoven's original version of the song. In the months and years following his publication of Adelaide, a surprising number of other versions hit the market, some with the text translated to Italian and some with orchestral accompaniments. In fact, the most striking thing about Adelaide is the almost overwhelming degree of popularity it enjoyed in various versions, including highly ornamented versions and even instrumental versions in the decade or so after its publication. We, however, are only going to look at the song in its original version. The five-measure piano introduction previews the melody in a somewhat ornamented fashion against broken chord accompaniment in the left hand. Here is the introduction and the first eight bars of the vocal melody. As you could hear, the melody is fairly simple for the first few bars, moving up the tonic triad of B-flat major slowly, and then moving back down the scale more quickly with some brief, gentle melismas. It's unremarkable harmonically, although Beethoven does touch lightly on some non-harmonic tones here and there in the melody to suggest an undercurrent of sentimentality. When the text refers to our heroine, Gently bathed in the magical sweet light, the melody blossoms forth with an ascending triad into the tenor's upper range and the introduction of lilting triplet rhythms. The rest of the phrase, that shimmers through swaying boughs in bloom, returns to a more conservative melodic style which uses several repeated notes, although we hear another expansive gesture, a descending triad beginning on a G 
the highest note in the melody to this point, at the reference to the swaying of the boughs. Beethoven changes the accompaniment pattern for the next part of the song, shifting the strongest melodic idea to the left hand as he moves into something like a one-time refrain by repeating the name, Adelaide, twice, with short but poignant triplet-based phrases climaxing on non-harmonic tones, the first beginning in the middle of the tenor's range and the second based on a more expansive descending triad starting higher. With the next part of the text, in the mirroring waves, in the alpine snows, in the golden clouds of the dying day, in the fields of stars, your image shines, the approach is generally through composed. Beethoven seldom repeats specific ideas, but he still employs a number of repeated notes, accented non-harmonic tones on the first beat of most measures, and a generally syllabic approach adorned with a few brief melismas. But the intensity does build in terms of both dynamics and the increasing use of dramatic melodic gestures, as the text refers to our heroine's shining image peaking again with a reference to Adelaide herself, which coincides this time with a cadence on C major. As we continue through the first section, Beethoven becomes rather adventurous, harmonically speaking, as we seem to shift from one tonal center to another. This is balanced to some degree by more direct melodic repetition. The first three-measure phrase, which features a strong ascending motive, followed by a gentle triplet-based descent, is repeated with a new text. And there's more text repetition here as well. The phrase, waves murmur and nightingales sing, is heard twice. The text beginning with evening breezes then repeats with mostly new music, although some of the descending triplet bass motives will seem familiar. This final part of the first section of the song, with its impassioned exclamations, probably comes closest to conventional recitative, although even here the style remains closer to arioso. Where 
We're going to jump ahead now to the second part of the song. It's in B-flat major, cut time, and marked allegro molto. And it begins piano with a perhaps surprisingly serene melody, given the text of One day, O miracle, there shall bloom on my grave a flower from the ashes of my heart. On every purple leaf shall clearly shimmer Adelaide. But, as you heard right at the end of my excerpt, the skies darken when the text is repeated, and we find ourselves, briefly, in B-flat minor, with the text, One Day a Miracle. The tonality is in doubt for an instant as Beethoven repeats the opening phrase up a third. But as we proceed through the text, If flowers shall bloom on my grave from the ashes of my heart, we settle back into B-flat minor for at least a while. Einst, o Wunder, Einst, o Wunder, Entblüht, ach, entblüht auf meinem Grabe Eine Blume der Asche meines Herzens, Der Asche meines Herzens. But our confidence returns once again, never to really fail us this time, when a one-measure interlude deposits us back in B-flat major and a familiar series of melodic phrases for the final bit of text, on every purple leaf shall clearly shimmer Adelaide. We stay in B-flat major for a little bit of a coda in which the pianistic accompaniment changes to a faster-moving eighth-note pattern in the left hand and offbeat chords in the right hand. We encounter a few little chromatic chord surprises before we finish, and the singer calls out Adelaide's name three times, the first suggesting a bit of residual anguish prompted by a repeated diminished seventh chord in the piano, the second almost heroic in nature, and the third very quietly, a triumvirate of dramatic gestures which the early 19th century romantics apparently found irresistible. Adelaide. 
I referred earlier to the immense popularity of this song. But looking back from the early 21st century, it's a little difficult to understand why. Swafford, though, makes an excellent point in this connection. Adelaide was composed in a style not quite Beethovenian, but not derivative either. So, despite the fact that Beethoven's setting makes use of various common musical techniques associated with sentimentality in this period, the song was nevertheless perceived as fresh and original. But Beethoven may have been just a little embarrassed by the song's popularity, especially in later years. He later wrote to the poet, saying, You yourself are aware what changes a few years may produce in an artist who is constantly progressing. The greater the strides he makes in his art, the less he is satisfied with his earlier works. We'll close this chapter on Beethoven's leader, but we'll return with a discussion of some of his later songs in a future episode. For our next episode, we'll take a look at the composer's famous Waldstein Piano Sonata, number 21 in C major, opus 53, and Sonata number 22 in F major, opus 54. Einst, oh Wunder, oh Wunder, entblüht auf meinem Grab. 